Coming up on this week's show, Royal Mail goes retro. New online-enabled gaming cabinets. And we talk to Australian video games pioneer, John Passfield. This week's show is brought to you by Future Publishing, the name behind your favourite gaming magazines. And The Economist, a smart guide to the forces changing your world. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 206, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. Now, this, of course, is a podcast where we like to call it, I mean, we are all still fans of modern video games. we just got to get that out there. But we like to cover what we call the golden age of video games. The retro age. The well, retro games. You think about this. I mean, the, the amount of stuff that we've covered on the show over the four years that we've been doing this now. Thinking back to, you know, where the video games industry came from, stuff like Pong back in the day in the late 70s. And now it's the biggest form of entertainment in the world, even bigger than Hollywood, even bigger than music. And every week on the show, we like to explore and get down and dirty and bring you the stories of behind the companies and the people who actually made this massive global industry what it is today. And I think that word's correct, global. Yeah. Because if you think about it, we've got places like Japan that really innovated with video games. The American industry is totally different to the European industry. And also there's Australia and New Zealand. And today we actually have Australia's premier video games developer. Now, I know Australia's been in the news for, you know, sad reasons over the last couple of weeks, and um, obviously any of our audience that are in Australia, hope everything's going all right with you and your family and you're safe. Uh, Today, though, I mean, we have got a really interesting guest, because we have had Australian guests on before, and it's always interesting to find out what life was like on the other side of the world. Yeah, so this is John Passfield, and basically he founded Chrome Studios, which was like the first kind of big Australian video game publisher, but he also worked with the Microbee, which, you know, we had the BBC computers here when we were at school. I don't know what a Microbee is, so this is going to be really interesting to hear about the educational one in Australia. But also we did Flight of the Amazon Queen, which was an absolute amazing game for the Amiga, and then it got ported to the PC, but it was in Amos, so they had to do every single line of code and convert that to C. Which... I'm really I'm really excited for this one. I got here. I didn't know who the guest was, as usual. And Ravi's telling me all the games that they've worked on. And a lot of these games are games that I grew up with as well. You yeah. know, Destroy All Humans 2. Yeah. Um, there was the Tidy Tasmanian... What's Tiger. It? Tiger, there we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, and these are games that I, I played on the GameCube and stuff like that on the original Xbox. So a real, real broad kind of like... Um, Reservoir. Yeah, Reservoir. And, and, and very kind of... <laughs> Repertoire. 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 <laughs> and, and <kind> of, <laughs> that in. <laughs> and kind of very Australian themed as well, because a lot of the stuff like, you know, he's he's covered surfing games. Yeah. He's kind of done stuff like that. Genres that you'd expect to come out of the Aussies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. John Passfield is our guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. We'll let Joe off as well. He's still got the man flu. I'll yeah. have a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into that, um, we need to talk about some really interesting stories this week, including... How many people have sent us the Royal Mail gaming stamp story? Amazing to see that. We'll talk more about that in a second. Before we do, though, let's give a huge thank you to a big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast and a company that's allowing us to keep doing this show into 2020. And these are our very good friends at the amazing Future Publishing. Now, Ravi and I know we've talked before on the show about how influential Future have been. You know, to us, I mean, I remember reading stuff like Amiga Format and Amiga Shopper and Public Domain magazine back in the day that Future released. They've oh, been yeah. going for ages. What I think is really amazing about it as well is so many people... I don't 
don't think realise grew up on their magazines as yeah. well because they've got so many they're so broad like obviously they've got so many different gaming magazines but you know official PlayStation magazine official Xbox magazine you just don't realise that they're behind all these great magazines and of course anyone that listens to our show needs to read Retro Gamer magazine every single month you can walk into your local newsagent or get a subscription they cover everything that's happening in the world of retro gaming and take you behind the scenes on the people that made the games and the systems uh, this month I've actually got a cover feature all about the analogue pocket the handheld to play them all uh, and also Edge magazine you mentioned then and they've actually got a cover feature this month called um, all about the Lord of the Rings Gollum the new game that's been unveiled as like the next gen game for the PS5 and the Xbox Series X they've explored that in the latest issue of Edge magazine that's pretty cool and speaking of the Xbox Series X official Xbox magazine they're talking about the rumours talking about the launch games this uh, this month uh, and also something what I thought was really cool because there's been a lot of buzz about Bully 2 recently yeah. apparently how Red Dead Redemption 2 was built on Bully's uh, social interactions no which way. I thought was really cool and uh, they've also got the PlayStation official magazine here and they're looking at the 2020 preview so I'm thinking exclusive titles there probably stuff like Last of Us 2 so whether it's the industry insight provided by Edge or the exclusive insider knowledge of official PlayStation or Xbox there is something for everyone and we would like to give you an exclusive offer now if you want to read any of these magazines subscribe with the Retro Hour podcast not only will you be helping out this show but get this we want to give you 83% off. That is quite a saving. Three issues for three quid. Normally, £18 from the shops. We're going to give you three issues of your favourite gaming magazine for just £3. Now, all you've got to do is tap in this and claim it while it's on. The amount of people we get contacting us a couple of months later going, is this offer still on? You need to claim it while it's running, all right? So head to this website, myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash rr. H game that stands for Retro Hour Game. My favourite magazines.co.uk forward slash RH game with our good friends from Future Publishing. Now let's talk about these Royal Mail retro stamps. Then this kind of came out of nowhere, it seemed, but actually it turned out a few of our friends have been working on these, haven't they? Yeah, so this is a kind of collaboration with Bitmap Books, Supple Studios, and UKIE and the Royal Mail, and it's really interesting to see because you know I think this celebrating. British video games is a great thing to do and it should have been done earlier I've always seen like I'm a bit of a stamp nerd just so I'm gonna get stamp nerdy but I've always seen a really cool kind of little stamp presentation packs yeah. they did a great dad's army one last last year yeah and this one's amazing but there's certain things that are gonna happen with this one so there's easter eggs hidden inside the stamps did you know that so there wait you get an easter egg in a stamp <laughs> yeah yeah so bitmap books have basically sent out a kind of marketing letter that said the, there's going to be Easter eggs inside these stamps. So when they come out, which is on the 21st of January, you're going to be able to look inside them and maybe work out some clues and see see if oh, there's really? any hidden messages or references I'm in calling it now like little dizzies on the back of them or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, it's a set of 12 postage stamps. So these are going to be, you know, you'll get them on letters and stuff, I imagine. That yeah, yeah. Around. A lot of people buy these for collecting yeah. and uh, there's a lot of stamp collectors, but one tip is if you do buy them collecting i know a lot of people have pre-ordered them now mm. they won't hold their value unless you go into the post office and get them to stamp the date on it if you have the date stamped on it then that's like the first day of issue oh, okay and that's yeah. that's what the stamp guys go for oh really i did yeah. not know that uh, yeah well they're talking about here i mean they are celebrating some of the best british video games of the 80s and 90s you've got dizzy he's in there wipe out 
Lemmings, Sensible Soccer. I mean, there are some really interesting ones that, you know, I would have expected to be on there, but I'm pleased are. Micro Machines. Yeah, I just saw that one, and I literally just fought a Dan as soon as I saw it. (laughs) Which, you know, is one of my all-time favourite games. Populous as well. Yeah, and they've got, you know, there's four um, Tomb Raider stamps as well. I mean, obviously one of the biggest British video games franchises ever. Um, But it's great that they're actually celebrating, not only, because, I mean, I I expected Tomb Raiders to get a stamp, but seeing stuff like Lemmings and, and stuff like Dizzy, actually getting mainstream recognition from Royal Mail. I mean, obviously having, you know, bitmap books working with them, yeah. they probably guided them as to which games I should cover. But it's amazing to see. And I've actually been looking through my Facebook feed. And, you know, I've got a lot of contacts on there, work for like Cygnosis and that. And we didn't know these stamps were coming out. And they're like, wow, okay, Lemmings is on the stamp there. Well, I, I think they're already selling out uh, of quite a few of the pre-orders yeah. that, that they're getting. And uh, I, I guess that they've put these ones on because these are the ones that they can get the rights for. Because I saw a lot of people going... Oh, why isn't Jet Set Willy on there? Yeah, yeah. Why, you know, that, that's yeah. maybe a more iconic kind of title, just in its Britishness. Mm. But um, maybe the rights aren't available, or, you know, who knows who owns these games at the yeah, moment? Yeah, that's very it's, true, uh, actually, come to think of it. Yeah, they've got um, Worms is on, on one of the stamps. <laughs> they <laughs> I mean, made it second class, though. Worms is second class. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at Worms, though, they haven't got the names of the Worms above them. They've actually taken that out. And I was looking on Facebook the other day, and they said, maybe because we're all based on, uh, you know, members of the royal family. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's incredible that, you know, Royal Mail are putting out stamps dedicated to some of our favourite games. Ever, I, I so. think people who are away from the UK might yeah. like them as well. They might be a nice little kind of British thing because postage always seems really, you know, the British postbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tourist attraction. It's kind of making me sad that I don't really get any post anymore. I get on my bills. Like, you know what? <laughs> when, just... Ra- when Ravi was like, oh, yeah, these are going to be on people's letters and stuff. And I thought to myself... I don't actually get any yeah. post with stamps on. If I do get post, it's all like, you know, pre-stuff from the bank, you know, where it's already <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, I'm probably not going to get any of these. Yeah, I might have to stand up to some like junk mailing list or something yeah, yeah. to get some stamps. So let's talk about um, arcade machines are obviously always really exciting to talk about. And Arcade 1UP, I mean, they've done some incredible cabinets over the last year or so. And now they're doing NBA Jam. You can play this at home now. Yeah, so this is absolutely amazing. So for those who don't know, Arcade 1UP are a big American company uh, who do free quarter scale uh, arcade machines essentially for the home. So these are uh, small. Yeah, they're, the they're not. They're like they're smaller. They're not like they're like four foot tall, kind yeah. of four and a half feet tall, and they're really cool. They're affordable. They are you know kind of like game console price, but they're a lot cheaper than going out there and trying to get a retro console. And they're like flat pack as well. And they've done some really really awesome ones over the last year. But yeah, they're bringing out the NBA one, which Ravi has just told me before we started the show, that is completely online enabled. Yeah, yeah. So it's online enabled, which I I don't know the scale of this because they're going to be doing some announcements at CES and stuff. But basically... That sounds really cool. If you could do online play between yeah, people, yeah, I'm hoping it's not just like leaderboards and scores and stuff. But if it's actually like playing against people, that's going to be really cool. That would be cool. And they're also talking about including a lot of classics now as well. So it's not just a sole NBA yeah, jam so machine. What, so what they tend to do is when they come out, it won't just be like oh, it's just NBA Jam on here. There's usually like three or four other games right. on there. So like the Street Fighter 2 one, I could I could be wrong on here, but I'm pretty sure the Street Fighter 2 one had Final Fight and then the Punisher beat him up as well. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, a fighting cabinet. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So it was a bit like a fighting cabinet. The Mortal Kombat one had Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 on it. 
It's never just one game, which is really yeah, cool. So as there's well. a couple of these cabs coming out: a Burger Time cabinet, yeah, which also contains Karate Champ, Bad Dudes, Caveman Ninja as well. Proper old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then a sit-down Star Wars cabinet as well. Oh wow, they're doing the sit-down Star Wars cabinet. Yeah, a classic um, Frogger cabinet and a Golden Axe cabinet as well. You know, oh. you want that Golden. Well, axe yeah. One. I mean, looking at the Golden Axe one, that's kind of a Sega fighting one. I mean, you got stuff like Golden Axe Shinobi's on there as well, apparently. Ultra um, Beast, Beast yeah. yeah, Wrestle Wars, Golden Axe. Revenge of Death Adder. Well, that's really interesting because Golden Axe Revenge of Death Adder has never had a release other than on arcade. And that's kind of like one of those Holy Grail games. So that's mm-hmm. just giving me a little heart palpitation seeing that that's coming out as well. And Shinobi, <laughs> I, that's always one of my kind of go-to games in the arcade. Played it at Arcade Club in Leeds the other month. I'm terrible at it now. <laughs> it's been so much further when I was like eight years old. <laughs> it's so, crazy, um, isn't it? Yeah, I might need a bit of practice at home. But I do love the fact that, you know, the arcade was always, as a kid, it's always, you always dreamed I'd love to have one of these in my house. So... The fact that you can get them now for an affordable price. I think, because I've been eyeing them up for a while, and you can get them on a couple of websites like John Lewis and Vary and stuff in the UK, because they're mainly like in Walmart and stuff in America. But, you know, they're starting to come out over here now. I think the Golden Axe one might be the one for me. Yeah, yeah, I do love If I was going to get one. That is one of my all-time favourite multiplayer games. I've been thinking I've got a small house. I need to get a cab in there. This, yeah, this yeah. should fit, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if it's hackable, I'm going mad on that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't even mention that. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the hacking. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of brilliant arcade games, Tecmo, I mean, they were a company that always put out brilliant games. We actually had, because uh, my, my mum and dad, um, they ran a pub for a while back in the early 90s, and we had an arcade cabinet in the pub called a Tecmo Night. Yeah. And it was also released as Wild Fang. I think for some reason we had the Japanese cabinet. Me and my brother used to absolutely hammer that. And not many people know that game, but it's actually a really good beat-em-up game. So whenever I see Tecmo, they were like one of my favourite arcade yeah, development yeah. companies. And there's a game called uh, Rygar the Legendary Warrior. Now, this came out in 1986. Side-scrolling um, fighting game. Really good game, actually. But now it seems that we're actually getting some uh, home ports all these years later. Yeah, so we're actually getting a Amiga AGA version, right? which has actually come out, and it looks really fantastic. Um, I've seen a lot of people kind of doing reviews of it at the moment and uh, posting footage of it, like the parallax on the back looks really good quality. Um, but that's going to be floppy disk only. I was, I was going, is there a CD... 32 yeah, release. I asked yeah. Ravi, I says, oh yeah, I've seen that. I've seen a few people posting it. Uh, and I was like, are you going to pick it up, Ravi? And straight away, he went, well, it's not on the CD32. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, it's, 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 it's a bit of an improvement on the original arcade, just with the extra kind of features that you could do in AGA. And it comes from the same guys who were behind Bomb Jack Beer Edition. Oh, right. That was really good, actually. It was yeah. a great put of Bomb Jack they did to the Amiga. Um, well, with that CD, th- can you not just make your own CD? And maybe, maybe and I can make it bootable. Yeah, that'd be yeah. easy enough. I want the official case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a free download. Uh, this is the demo version. Okay, it's a right. free download, but you can actually buy it boxed. That's right, what right. I very really like about it, the fact that you can get the reproduction like box yeah. and manual and stuff. I always think they look really fantastic. And I love the fact that you can just get like new retro games in boxes and stuff. It's yeah. just, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, I didn't have many original boxed Amiga games back in the day, but it was always an experience when I did unbox one. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah and there also seems to be a lot going on with Rygar at the moment because people have just done a ZX Spectrum right. looking port as well for it as well. So I'm not sure how much in development that is, but it's had a, a specky kind of graphics overhaul. Uh, it's a graphics mod at the moment. Cool. So if you want to give it a download, I'll show that download link and everything else we've talked about this week in our show notes, like we do every week at theretrohour.com. Now, this is a really cool studio in Liverpool. Yeah, this is a really cool concept, actually. You know, like um, YouTube spaces. Have yeah. you heard of this? You, what are they I, then? 
Are you allowed in there, Dan? How many subscribers do you have on YouTube? I've got about 38,000. You should be allowed in there. So YouTube, YouTube <laughs> have executive a... executive lounge. Yeah, yeah. you have to flash your phone on the door. Like, look. Yeah, YouTube have an office in London that you can go in I've for been free. There. I've been there. And uh, <laughs> if you have 30,000 or more... I think you can get in there, have a cup of tea, sit down, use a bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking. Use a I'm, bit of a studio just, space to record. I'm just thinking, like, you know, the, the, the countdown club and the IT crowd. Yeah. <laughs> the, the elite go in there, yeah. So. It, to, yeah me, but, it, to me, it really sounds like when you go abroad, like when you go on a holiday and you can pay that, like, £50 extra to get into the executive lounge <laughs> where you get free drinks and, like, old fruit and crackers. That's what it sounds like to me. I know it's not, but... <laughs> well, it's the kind of the, the, the kind of creative space to record videos and stuff. Well, I've just seen this article on the uh, Liverpool Echo about this place called Vide Odyssey Studio. Right. And it's in Liverpool. And this place looks really cool. So they've got a TV recording studio in there and it's just run by uh, dad and son team, Chris and Andy Johnson, and they've got a fully professionally equipped green screen studio that you can okay. film in and come and hire and use that. They've also got a cafe. All right. They've also got an arcade in there as well. Ooh, nice. Very nice. <laughs> and they have a VHS 90s video store in there as well. Oh, so, really? What, to buy videos for? Uh, a vast collection available for hire. Oh, yes. for hire? Yeah, oh, yeah. wow, okay. And a full-scale replica of the Little Shop of Horrors as well, apparently. <laughs> yeah. It's quite random. Uh, but yeah, VHS, I mean, we were talking about this before, um, that recently, I mean, I've been watching AVGN and his kind of, you know, the video shop yeah, rentals yeah, that yeah. we've been talking about. He did a couple of really good ones over Christmas. Um, uh, Ernest Saves Christmas. Oh, yeah. Which is a Christmas movie that I watch on my own every <laughs> Christmas day because no one else in the family ever wants to watch it. And at National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Now, recently, I actually got um, a video recorder off eBay because I had a load of old tapes, I thought. Yeah. I binned a load of them. I had a few less, so I thought I'd buy a video just to have that kind of retro experience. I've actually started buying back all the tapes I threw out about two years ago for eBay again now. My mum still has like a huge chest of them all yeah. because I still not let her throw them away. All right. But heck, am I going to go over and take them from her house and bring them to mine? Well, well there's a real good point actually with VHS and why to still use it. And that is the amount of stuff that's actually been digitized onto DVD. Yeah is like a quarter or like, you know, even a fifth of what was available back in the days. And we used to have a lot more movie selection. Then you think the amount of stuff that's now streamed mm. is even limited from that yeah. that's been converted from DVD. And yeah. then you've got all those YouTube crap originals that they shove in there and try and make them seem like new films. Yeah, so yeah, what we're yeah. watching, uh, not YouTube, Netflix. I don't even So know. yeah, now what we're watching is a real limited kind of profile of movies compared to the selection we used to have in the 90s you know? yeah I completely agree because I'm big into like 80s horror films mm. like 70s yeah. like you know like the video nasties and stuff and often when I'm watching these reviews of them and stuff like that they're always saying how you can't get it on DVD or there was a limited print of a couple of thousand in like 2001 or something yeah. and now you, the only place really to, to watch these is on VHS so yeah it's, it's pretty cool I think it's going to stay alive and there's a huge VHS ripping scene that's now started and people yeah. trying to get VHS in the highest yeah. quality as possible and kind of do their own so digital if, conversions I know? wonder if this is something we're going to see more of them video game rental shops yeah I mean video, it's cool video tape shops, rental yeah. shops it's so. weird though because I never thought I would miss VHS and as a former I really don't but there is something so I've got a little CRT screen in yeah. my home office and there is something very nostalgic about so I've got a, actually a videotape. It's Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Brilliant. Compilation. Yeah. In the middle is an old, randomly, 
an old 1960s episode of Batman in the middle of it. <laughs> I think they were promoting, like, you know, the Batman, Batman. Yeah, videos yeah, yeah, were out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was watching it the other day, and it just took me back to being like a kid again, watching that video, sitting there wait, watching yeah. Batman, waiting for Ghostbusters. But I, I find stuff. streaming as well. I just start yeah. clicking through stuff and watching little sections of it. You can do that with VHS. Yeah. If you wanted to skip... Like forward, <laughs> then you'd have to hold it down, you know. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not going to be hooking my VHS player up to my 4K TV and watching films. That you know, I think you <laughs> But I actually got um, so I was back home at my parents over Christmas for a bit, and my uncle he went in his attic, he's having a big clean out, and he found a video recorder. Go, do you want this? So I've got two now. But also, he found an old eight millimeter camera. Okay. And there's a load of tapes that me and my brother actually filmed <laughs> back in the early 90s, and I was watching one the other day, and there's actually my brother and I playing Cool Spot on the Amiga in about 1993 in our bedroom. And I was like, I was watching it in my home office and I thought, well, I'll get get this ripped digital. I might stick it on YouTube if uh, my brother doesn't kill me before I get it on there. He's quite embarrassed. Um, But my missus was like, you two are the first YouTubers. (laughs) It's like, it's a Let's Play video. It's like, yeah, it's crazy. So, um, yeah. You should definitely upload that. That's pretty amazing. It's absolutely cringeworthy, but I think it has to be put on there. So, yeah, cool though. VHS rental stores, I mean, it's... uh, very niche. I mean, again, it's one of those things you don't really see anywhere anymore. No, even like, no. I, I think, you know, there is something about that that really is very nostalgic. And if they can combine it with, obviously, the other part of their business, it probably makes them yeah. the money. And, and, I, and, I, and I just think, you know, the kind of the way that we're consuming video now, yeah. uh, we're going to get really bored of what's available in the small selection. And they're going to have to look back and start digitizing or buying old rights to old films. Yeah, and for real. Yeah. Getting them out there, you know. And the thing about digitizing videos is you have to watch them in real time as well. Which yeah, I've been doing these yeah, camera yeah. Yeah. like, oh, sitting there for three hours doing it. <laughs> So if you want to read more about that, um, Liverpool Video City Studios. So we'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we've got our retro picks on the way in a minute. Before we do that, let's give a big thank you to another huge supporter of the Retro Hour podcast. And these are our very good friends at The Economist. Now, The Economist covers so much, obviously, the economy, finance, but also world politics, business, science, technology, arts, the environment, video games. And speaking of technology, every week we have a look through The Economist for something we found really interesting. And this week, one of our favourite topics, space. Yeah, so we're actually talking warfare in space here, which is a a new thing that, you know, we've not really heard about before. And Americans are seeking a faster way to launch military satellites. So this is crazy. You know, satellites are really important to us. We get all our communication and information from there. The new kind of trend is shooting down satellites. So India shot down a satellite with one of its own missiles in March, and China blew up one of its own in 2007. So the ante is being upped. But uh, there's a response to this, and this is called responsive space. And the idea of responsive space is that they're going to 3D print parts of rockets, parts of the satellites that they need to get them up there as quick as possible and as cheaply as possible. <laughs> is there nothing you can't 3D print these days? No. <laughs> so that is the kind of thing you can read about in The Economist. They sift through the noise, let you know what's going on in the world around you, and they've been a trusted source of intelligence for over 170 years. So if you're the kind of person who never stops asking questions and you want to know why the world is the way it is and get yourself set up for the next decade, we want to give you your own free print copy of The Economist through your door. So all you have to do... If 
if you want to get hold of a copy of The Economist on us, if you're based in the UK, grab your phone right now and text the word retro and send it to 78070. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing that as well. Get your own free print copy of The Economist, text the word retro and send it to 78070 with The Economist, the smart guide to the forces impacting your world. Now, also every week on the Retro Hour podcast, we roll out the red carpet to our VIP members. These are people who've made it into the Hall of Fame. Now, I always test Joe out on the Hall of Fame. Let's have a little refresher with Ravi. How do you get in the Hall of Fame? You go to the retrohour.com, press support, and then you can donate via PayPal in any currency, and you can do recurring payments. I thought he was going to forget then as well. <laughs> no, no, he knew. I hope he made it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be now, obviously, like we say every week, it's a tip jar. So if you like what we do and you want to put a few quid into the cause, a couple of dollars, a couple of euros, it all makes a massive difference. And obviously everything we get, 100% goes back into the running of the show. And for doing that, you will get a mention on a future episode in the very prestigious Hall of Fame, like this week, Raymond Montalban. Bernhard Lucas. Rob Hubers and Paul Kakarevic, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com or you can do it direct from your PayPal app, paypal at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our interview this week, chatting to John Passfield, Australia's premier video game developer, we are going to talk um, about our retro picks now. Now, every week on the show, we kind of, you know, give a bit of love to the retro gaming community and talk about something that's caught our eye this week. Now, I've been looking at a website called the Macintosh Repository. Now, this is a really good website because I've been setting up my old Power Mac G4 ready for a video next week. And this is a website that lets you download loads of old school Mac apps dating from like, you know, the early 68K stuff right through to the PowerPC era. You can get like all versions of Photoshop on there. Pretty much anything you want for the Mac, you can get from this website and it's completely free to make an account on there too. So I find that website really handy actually. It's like a kind of old school mac app store yeah. <laughs> yeah well there's games on there as well you can get like you know but what i like about it is say you want to download like quake for the yeah. for the 68k mac or the power pc they'll have about eight different versions of it you know version 1.04c and like all, all the oh, all the really? cd images are all ripped and <laughs> the, the attention to detail that they've done you can download the covers and make your own cd artwork that kind of thing so it's a really good website probably the best site i've found if you want to download old school mac stuff so uh macintoshrepository.org if you want to check that out You've been getting into some uh, baseline music this week, then. Yeah, so this is uh, one of my favourite kind of chiptune artists at the moment. And Here this is. is Harley Likes Music. And what Harley does, we'll wait for the drop. All Here right. we go. He does Sheffield Baseline. So is this, um, this is the event that you went to recently. Was he there? Uh, Steel City Chip. Okay, yeah. yeah. Ready? Joe's Raven, Thread Shapes. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and it's, it's very kind of Midland sound, but done on Game Boys. And he organises uh, Steel City Chip Doom, which is basically... <laughs> Steel what? That's a bit of a tongue twister. Oh, I'll say it again. <laughs> he, and he organises Steel City Chip Doom, yeah, which right. is basically a big chip tune event where they get different artists every time, and they've got Steel City Chip Doom number three coming up soon. That's and yeah, but this is a digital album, $4 as well, which yeah. is a uh, pretty good value. You've been watching a YouTuber who, who got this week so i've been watching uh dante ravioli his name is what a name uh, yeah what a name uh who very similar to one of the ones that uh, ravi actually brought up last week so this guy he plays not they're not massively retro some some oldish games like resident evil 4 resident evil 6 and stuff like that uh but what he does is he plays them in really silly ways you know can you complete them without 
uh, without shooting any enemies, without killing any enemies. <laughs> uh, I've been watching his Resident Evil 4 videos, which are my favourite games of all time, just doing really daft, funny stuff, but he's just a funny YouTuber right, as okay, well. Yeah, yeah. You know, he just kind of grabs your attention. You put it on in the background, but before you know it, like, you're actually fixated on it. Proper, You know, sometimes you put a YouTuber on and you just kind of listen to it, but mm. he really just draws you in with just the way he is but I love his Resident Evil 4 videos um, and there's one called Can Ashley Kill the Knights which is essentially there's these enemies which are in night you know night armour you can't kill them usually but can you kill them by kicking a door open in their face <laughs> and he does it like 5,000 times or wow. something like that until it dies so yeah really really good videos really good YouTuber so we'll put all our community picks and everything else we talked about this week you'll find them all in our show notes um, and of course we just want to say actually I noticed this week that um <laughs> Spotify is now the world's most popular podcast service. Yeah, Apple Apple didn't step up their game, did yeah. they? They never fixed it and st- Spotify's <laughs> come in and took the crown. Yeah, took the crown this week. So, I, you know, a lot of people get in touch and go, oh, are you on Spotify? We are on there. Leave a review if you listen to Spotify. <laughs> I love that. Leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, still massive. Um, Google, we're on every service. A lot of people got in touch. So, guy the other day mentioned this through, through our website again. I'd, I'd love it if you just um, offer the MP3 files for download, which we do on every show, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. You say if you go on the website, you can download the MP3 straight away. Yeah, yeah. yeah click on the uh, click it's on, on the, the front page. Link. It just says download the MP3. Is it can get them in any way that you can listen to the show. We've made it available for you. So, if you want to um, get a list, all our services are on the website as well at theretrohour.com. And of course, any reviews that you can leave on uh, your favorite podcast service of choice is massively appreciated and really helps out the show as well right then let's get into this week's special guest crossing to the other side of the world to chat to John Passfield You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Talking about companies like Chrome Studios, games like Flight of the Amazon Queen as well. Talking about educational machines like the Microbee. This should be a really interesting one. Let's welcome on our guest this week. Hello, John Passfield. Hello. Thanks for having me all the way here from Australia. I was going, what time of day is it there? It must be really early in the morning, is it? Uh, it's just about uh, 6 a.m. in the morning. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit early. <laughs> you pro- well, we appreciate you coming on, John. Hopefully, you've got a coffee at hand. Definitely have, yes, right here. <laughs> well, before we get into kind of, you know, the games and companies that you've worked on over the years, I mean, to kind of get a bit of your, uh, you know, your geek credentials, we like to do this with our guests. What was kind of your um, background in computers and gaming then? Where did kind of it all start for you? Well, for me, uh, I'm a bit of a sci-fi geek, so I was a, a huge Star Trek fan as a kid and Star Wars, of course. Um, so, my, so I was always into computers and technology, but the kind of defining moment for me was um, as a kid being at a local sort of... Uh, a show or like a fairground show and i remember seeing a i think it was an, um, a commodore pet computer mm. um it's kind of fuzzy but it was a basically green screen computer so for me it was um going into this little like tent in a in a in you know surrounded by cows and and um chickens and they had a display and i started playing this game and i believe it was um colossal cave and uh you know i hadn't seen anything like this before and i typed in uh, some commands and it reacted to what I was doing. I remember picking up a, an axe, then throwing an axe, and uh, the screen responded that you know this character, a dwarf on screen, disappeared in a puff of greasy smoke. At that point, I was I was hooked and I had to have a computer. Um, <laughs> so that was a text so was adventure kind of, game, wasn't it? Colossal Cave. That, yeah. That's right. Yes, yeah. Colossal Cave. Yes, and it was. Uh, yeah, it just blew my mind that that such a thing. Like it was reading my mind. It was amazing. So your first machine was a microbee, and that was an Australian educational computer. How did this system come about? And was it really popular in Australia? 
Yeah, so the Micro B was developed here in Australia, one of the first sort of Australian computers, and it was probably similar to like a BBC Micro. Hmm. So the idea, it was a it was a keyboard based computer system with the accessories. It was very popular in Australia, and I believe Sweden where the it was the other country where it was sold, and it was a Z80 chip, and uh, it had a, a version of Micro uh, uh, Basic built in, and yeah, they used it in schools with things like you know Turtle computers and um, some educational programs. So that was also one of my big exposures was then at, at high school, actually having microbees at the uh, at the computer at the computer labs. Well, what was basically a, probably the, an old tech drawing room with a computer in it. And uh, we ended up getting one of those uh, for home. And that's when I started seriously getting into programming and learning how to, how to actually work the machine. Were they a budget machine or were they uh, kind of expensive? Because when we had the BBC educational ones, there weren't that many home users because of the price. Yeah, I think the similar thing with the Micro B, it was close, I believe, like 399 Australian dollars, which was probably a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, you know, price to pay back then. I remember um, begging my parents to get one and my dad was really, we don't need a computer. He was a technician, so he was a tech sort of guy. And then he eventually caved in and got one, and, and he himself actually really enjoyed it. He, he loved programming little mathematical equations into it. But yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a sort of situation where I had one, no one else really, you know, even though they're at the schools, no one else had one. And because I was started making games on it, I didn't tell anyone because it was such a geeky thing to do. So none of my friends knew that I actually made um, games on the system. With the uh, Micro B, you, were you kind of like self-taught with the programming then? And how, how did you find that? Yeah, so, well, I grew up in a country town um, in Australia, which is northern uh, New South Wales. So this is a small town with, like, you know, close to 3,000 people living there. And there were no real, like, you couldn't go to the library. There was no Google. Mm. So the nearest sort of place with um, with any sort of uh, information knowledge was a, another town, which is, like, you know, 30 kilometers away. And there were a number of books for the Micro B. Uh, and there were two sort of books called the Wildcard Series. So, I, yeah, I got one of those books you know, saved up for it and used that, read that and, and sort of learned how to program from that book. And the other one was, I believe it might have been uh, a British author. There was a whole series of listings, like big book of games you could buy. Uh, and these are like these, um, like almost like Dawling Kindersley, if I'm saying that right, books. And they would have listings in them. And that was a great way for me to sort of type those things out and, and learn from that. Mostly adventure games. I mean, were there like any Australian game developers and companies that you looked up to at the time, or was it stuff from overseas that you were mainly playing? Yeah, all all overseas. There wasn't. Again, it was it was sort of thing where I knew there were computer game companies around, but I didn't see anything like that in Australia at the time. And I'm sure there was. There was Beam Melbourne House was making stuff uh, in Melbourne, like The Hobbit and great games like that. But I never made the connection that they were here in Australia, even though they're called Melbourne House. So, yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, me by myself in a country town making games. And um, most of my exposure was really through magazines that came in from the US and also from the UK. Um, so I used to go to the, the local news agents. Quite lucky that they stocked a lot of um, great stuff. And we're very lucky that I, I, we actually received like the second issue of 2000 AD. Missed the first one. So I never got the little uh, floating disc on the front cover. But that was sort of my introduction. We, we got a lot of stuff through from the UK and, and the US. So that was the way I learned about computers. 
I remember reading letters in like um, British magazines back in the day from like readers in Australia. You know, whenever you got like a British reader complaining that you know I have to pay like four pounds for your magazine, and all the Australian readers would be like, "Yeah, we we like triple that the price over here by getting them on import." So you know, it was quite yet to be quite committed, I guess, to to actually pick those overseas mags up at that price. Exactly, and it was, uh, but it was great because you know a lot of the games I felt like I played them, although I never had played them, um, and that sort of influenced stuff I made. So um, you know, I'd read about Jet Set Willy. Um, oh yeah, a lot of a lot of those games that were Spectrum games mm. and um, I guess early Commodore sixty four games, and I try to emulate those those games. Um, Halloween Harry uh, is one of the that was the second game I made on the microb computer, um, and you know it was it had a lot of stuff like I, I went through and named all the rooms funny names and that was inspired directly from games I'd read about in the magazines. Um, but yeah, just it would have been great to. I mean, the the magazines were expensive, but then also the computers were quite expensive as, as well. Well, in grade ten, you created your first game, which was a, a Pengo clone, um, Chili Willy. Um, what was the process of kind of creating that game, and uh, how did you end up finding a publisher, especially being at such a young age? Yeah. So what we had again with the sort of influx of magazines and stuff through our news agency, even though we were a small town, we we also had an arcade. Um, so this is back in the 80s. So it seemed like everyone had arcades. So we um, had stand-up machines like you know, Space Invaders, and then we had Pac-Man, and then little corner shops. We called them tuck shops. Mm. It's like they were always near schools, and you'd have your lunchtime order, and they'd go up to the tuck shop, and they'd fill those orders for the kids. Uh, they had uh, machines as well, and I got hooked on Pango, and I was playing that a lot, and I thought, I could probably make this, just be naive and not knowing any better. So I went home. And over the Christmas break for holidays, I sat down and started making a Pengo game. And when I finished it, uh, this was on the microbee, I thought I should try and do something with this. And in the back of uh, the manual was um, the company called Honeysoft. And they were the software version or the software label of um, microbee computers. So I just uh, made a cassette tape version and sent it down to them. And then, you know, a few weeks to a month later, I got a letter saying, we love your game. We'd like to include it and, and publish it. And I wrote back and said, that'd be great. And that was kind of it. There was no contract. And uh, the next thing is they sent me um, some cassette tapes with my game on it. And uh, the one computer shop where I bought the the, the books and how to program, uh, you know, it was there for sale for like $12. Do you remember the first time you saw it on a, on a shelf? You know, I, I kind of, I think it was probably, I was shocked when I got it in the mail and, and seeing this this bright orange cassette tape cover. And it was very, um, the cover was printed on a dot matrix printer. So it wasn't like, you know, the the magazines that showed the amazing uh, artwork of like the Spectrum games. It was a bit low rent, a bit cheap looking, but it was an amazing feeling. It was like, um, it did, I didn't quite, I didn't quite get it that, you know, this is actually is something that was, um, that I should be you know, amazed about. Um, and it, again, I didn't tell my friends that this was out because <laughs> it was such a geeky thing. Um, and my wife, who I went to school with at the time, she had no clue. Um, until much later that I'd, I'd made these games. The next game you worked on was Halloween Harry. Uh, was that the following like summer holidays that you worked on that one? And uh, was that a popular title? Yes, exactly. That was that was the following holidays. And um, that was around the time I think Ghostbusters was coming out. And so inspired by that, and also, as I said, I was inspired by um, a lot of the British games I was reading about in, um, in the computer game magazines. And so that was a, basically a room-based game. I wanted to make something original because Pengo, uh, you know, is copyright um, by, I think, Sega. And, of course, Chili Willy is a name which is, um, you know, a cartoon character. So I completely ripped off two intellectual properties making that game. So I thought I'll do something original. So, uh, yeah, created the idea of Halloween Harry, a ghost hunter. 
and each room was a like as a set location where you'd uh, run around the rooms, collect items, uh, shoot bad guys, avoid traps, and escape to another room. And when it came out, so they took that and um, I sent it to the Honeysoft and they published it. And it, it seemed to have a lot of uh, fan followings uh, in Australia. So I get people who still remember the Microbee game, but of course later we, we remade it. But um, yeah, but it was, it was um, I was quite proud of it because it was, it was original and um, yeah, it was, a, it was a fun game. You know, one thing I love as well about the fact that, you know, you made, you made Halloween Harry, you don't get many seasonal games anymore. And yeah, we were talking over Christmas on the show and Halloween as well. It's kind of a period when I like to play games that are made for that season. And I guess and maybe there's something about the fact that, you know, those games are only on sale during that time and they're not going to sell the rest of the year. That could be a reason why you don't get many like Halloween or Christmas kind of games. But I do love the fact that, you know, that there is stuff that is around the holiday kind of times. Yeah. And I had no, I had no clue about that when mm. I was making it. I thought it's, it's, it's spooky and scary. Halloween makes sense. And it was only when we did the remake and Apogee uh, said that very reason they said you can't call it Halloween Harry because it only sell during Halloween. So yeah. we had to come up with an alternative name, which was Alien Carnage uh, starring Halloween Harry. Um, but I, I do think I look at like Mariah Carey and her Christmas songs and I think, you know, every year it's just it's always there. So it'd be nice to have that game that does sort of, uh, you know, at that time of the year, just sells bucket loads. That'd be lovely. And Mariah's money. It'd be nice. <laughs> oh, yes. That'd be great as well. Well, when was the first time that you saw or heard an Amiga and uh, were they really popular in Australia? Yeah, so Amigas were popular. And it's funny because uh, just to go back a bit about getting the Amiga. So I, I finished uh, Halloween Harry sent it off to Honeysoft, and then graduated from school, high school, then went on to do um, – I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I thought I'd do computers because that's, that's what I was, I was working with at the time. The idea of making a computer game career wasn't really uh, – couldn't see any way to do that. So I went to uh, university, studied computer science, then graduated uh, at computer – at university, I actually made games. So I, I made a, a text-based adventure on the, um, the local uh, VAX computer. Then graduated, got a job at a telecommunications company, um, probably similar to British Telecom, and then completely hated it. And so at that point, I became uh, kind of dispassionate about computers, and I didn't have a computer at home, and I just sort of hated the things because it was so mind-numbingly boring, the job I had. And so when my first introduction to to the Amiga was through a friend of mine who I'd met through uh, the comic store. So I was into comics and uh, doing cartoons, and Steve Stemathiatis. And so Steve uh, had, I think, just graduated from arts college, and he had an Amiga computer. And we're talking about comic books, and I mentioned I'd made a game called Halloween Harry. And he said, oh, I'd love to make games, and I've got an Amiga computer. And so that was my first introduction. It was like, it was just amazing to see this uh, this machine. It literally was like looking into the future, mm. uh, just the idea of the WYSIWYG interface and uh, the graphics. So I immediately went out and bought an Amiga. I think it was the Amiga 500. And uh, yeah, and we we both decided let's make a game, let's remake Halloween Harry. So I went, I flipped from being hating computers after my job to suddenly falling back in love with computers again thanks to the Amiga. That's amazing. And uh, was there any challenges porting Halloween Harry to the Amiga, or was it quite smooth? Yeah, well, there were challenges. So because again, I'm I'm a um I, I programmed my original games in BASIC uh, with a little bit of machine code to to do things like sound effects and some stuff where you know the machine language the the basic wasn't fast enough, and so with um, with the Amiga, we bought Amos, and we started using that to develop the game, and it was working fine, but again, it was still a bit challenging. But what happened was uh, we foolishly decided um, this sort of leads into I guess Amazon Queen, Monkey Island had come out, and we decided to start making another game, and uh, at this stage, we'd 
met some friends of ours uh, who were also making games because it's a very small community. And so we decided to split it up. So they started taking over Halloween Harry, the actual programming of it. Um, so, so yeah, so it was. Um, so we developed it on the Amiga and also um, eventually it came out on the PC, though. How did you end up getting it published with Apogee then? Because they were a huge kind of publisher and had some fantastic titles at the time. Yeah, so we what we did was um, we had Halloween Harry going and we had a local company in Brisbane uh, where we, where I moved to after graduating um, university uh, called Menacom. And they did a lot of um, business software, but they also distributed um, shareware from overseas and they were doing the um, Apogee distribution. So we talked to them about distributing it locally and through them we had the introduction to Apogee. And yeah, just, just through that sort of um, connection, it was uh, George Passard and Scott Miller from Apogee uh, liked the game and, yeah, offered to publish it. And that's how we got the deal with Apogee, which, you know, it seemed so effortless and, and simple back then, but it was very fortuitous because you know, these these uh, guys went on to make some amazing shareware games and publish some some awesome stuff. And so to be there at that time was was very serendipitous, I think, and very, very lucky. Well, you mentioned Monkey Island there as well. I mean, I was a huge fan of that game when I was a kid. Pretty much, you know, all the LucasArts um, adventure games they released. One thing I loved about Monkey Island as well, I mean, was this kind of a... An inspiration to you was kind of, you know, the sense of humor that was in the game as well. You know, it wasn't like really serious. Oh, totally. And it was that moment. Um, yeah, we're working on Halloween Harry, making this platform game, which was great fun. And then we went over to a friend who was the, uh, who I met Steve through the comic shop. And this uh, friend of ours actually you know, ran the comic shop, but he was a huge PC gamer and he had Monkey Island and we started playing it. And it was a light bulb moment seeing this game, which, as you said, was incredibly funny, but it was like a, like a comic book come to life. And uh, both Steve and I, being huge comic fans, uh, and and making games now um, in our spare time, we went. We've got to make a game like this. And uh, yeah, so Monkey Island was. Um, I've, in fact, in my office here right now, I've got uh, Monkey Island hanging up on my wall, the, the poster of that, because um, right. it's a it's a big inspiration as well. You then went on to do Amazon Queens. How did you guys kind of go go around the concepts of it and like the storylines and ideas? How did you come up with those ideas? Yes. Yeah, so. After playing Monkey Island, there was the uh, we went and started to play as many games as we could, and we were gravitated towards Lucasfilm games because they just were, you know, uh, no, no offense to Sierra games, but they tended to have some logical puzzles where you kind of died for no reason, and Lucasfilm games are just so just free flowing and, and fun to play. Um, so we played Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, mm. and I think The Fate of Atlantis was in development when we came up with the idea of ours, and it came out before us, but. Um, we want to do an Indiana Jones style of game because we love the idea of adventure in Indiana Jones, big fans. But we thought we'll just diverge from what um, Lucasfilm are doing, which is, you know, a character who's in search of archaeology, archaeological items, and he always has supernatural elements. So Steve and I were big fans of 40 and Times as well. So we went through and read through all the 40 and Times magazines, a lot of stuff with the Crystal Skull, you know, the idea of ancient gods and aliens. So we thought, let's go down this path. So we created the idea of um, Joe being an American. We set it in the 50s. And then we um, come up with the idea of it being science fiction themed and have the whole element being science fiction based. Um, so that's sort of how we came out. So it was a, definitely a, a riff on Indiana Jones. Uh, and again, we wanted to make it really funny. I'm not sure that we succeeded on that, but we had people who really enjoyed the game. Which tools did you use to create the game and kind of how big was the team? Yeah, so the tools we used was, again, Amos. And Amos was perfect for that. So I wrote the game editor in Amos. Uh, so we, we built this editor first where we could um, load up a, a graphic screen and start plotting out you know, little walk zones and hotspots to click on. Uh, and then we exported that file out for a, the actual game engine to read in. So the entire game was playable 
um, Pusat and uh, in Amos. And uh, the team size was, was initially just myself and Steve. So I did the programming and the editor and writing and design, and Steve did the art and, and, and design as well. And so it was just the two of us beavering away. Uh, and at this stage, um, from the success of um, uh, Halloween Harry, we actually set up an office. So we had a little place uh, in Brisbane. And so it was the two of us by ourselves in there for a while, working away on this game, basically completely Amiga-based until we signed with um, uh, Renegade. And um, at that point, yeah, we, we started building out the PC version, which then was rewritten in C. Well, I've always thought, you know, out of any genre of video game, adventure games have got to be one of the most complex to do because of all the different routes a players can take and tying all the story together. Um, the game took, was it four years to make that? And obviously when it came out, it was pretty late in the day for point-and-click adventure games. Did it take longer than you expected and was it a bigger challenge? Yes, it was It was quite a lot. It was funny because I, I've got a, a diary I wrote and uh, reading back to that diary, you know, I was sort of getting depressed because it was taking so long. And now looking back at it going, you know, there was literally two of us and we end up getting a, another guy. So Steve and I did the bulk of the work. We had a guy called Tony Ball in to help with the, um, the porting. But really looking back at it now going, you know, three to four years to make a game with two people is not a bad thing. Yeah. But at the time it felt like we were taking forever. So yeah, it was um, it was it was uh, it, it it took a while, but you know, I think in hindsight it wasn't that bad. But we should have probably staffed up and got more people on board. But we were just so into just doing everything ourselves back then. And I think also the Amiga at that point was starting to slow down in sales as well. I believe hmm. uh, we still um, end up we had a great deal. So so Renegade was the publisher, and now we're the um, company co-founded with um, Bitmap Brothers, uh, Mike Montgomery, Steve, and um, Eric Matthews. And they had an amazing deal structure where we actually had a 50-50% split with those guys. So even though the sales weren't you know, uh, as good as they could have been if we'd at least earlier, we actually made money out of that to keep us going as a company up until we formed Chrome. So, um, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was definitely a success for us. Well, I heard um, EA came to kind of see the titles before you did the deal with Renegade. And uh, what did they say about the titles? Yeah, so we had on the Gold Coast uh, a distribution company, uh, Arm of EA Electronic Arts. And again, we're so naive back then because we are in our early 20s um, making these games. And uh, I'd called up a company in Melbourne who distributed games and said, Look, we've got a game we want to want to sell. And they said, oh, you'll probably make a few thousand dollars. That's all you'll make out of it. And at the point I'm going, this doesn't sound right because... You know, this company's in the US and the UK and getting these magazines where they're obviously making money. So we found Electronic Arts in the Gold Coast, went down and saw them, and we sort of had a handshake agreement. They said, this is great. So we were excited, and we didn't think to ask for advances or royalties or even an agreement. And so, you know, a few months later, we had Amazon Queen, but also Halloween Harry um, playable and running. So this is before we signed Halloween Harry with Apogee. And we went down to the Gold Coast and they had their, um, I think it was the head of Europe coming out called, I'll say his name, Mark Lewis. And he came out um, to review the games. So it was a big day for us. We're all excited. We, we drove down to the Gold Coast, which is a you know hour, and a hour or so drive. We set up our computers. We had uh, the Amiga showing uh, Halloween Harry and the PC with Amazon Queen. And we thought, these are great. And in walks the guy from EA and he says, I will put my hand out to shake his hand. He said, oh, don't, don't bother telling me your names. I won't remember them. <laughs> and at that point, it was, oh, this is not good. And then for the next uh, 10 minutes, he just tore strips off us, telling us how terrible the games were, that, you know, Halloween Harry should be on uh, the uh, the Amiga. It shouldn't be on the PC because we had, yeah, sorry, we had the uh, Halloween Harry running on the PC and we had um, 
Amazon Queen and the Amiga. He told us that the uh, Amazon Queen shouldn't be on the Amiga. It should be on the PC. That's where the market is. Uh, LucasArts game or Lucasfilm games at the time where, you know, had to be 10 times better than what they were. It wouldn't sell. It was terrible. And then he just stormed out of the room. Oh, God. And we sat there dumbfounded. And we weren't expecting this because we thought, oh, this is great. You know, we're going to get a, you know, probably this is where we'll get an agreement signed up. And I, I looked at the uh, the Australian guys and I said, what, what does that mean? And he went, oh, I guess we're not publishing it. And we were just dumbfounded. We packed our computers up and we sort of walked out. And I said, oh, thanks. Thanks for nothing. And we got back to Brisbane and we were all completely, you know, depressed with the whole thing. And I thought, bugger this. So I got all my, luckily, collection of magazines from over the years, like, you know, um, CU Amiga and, and, and all, the, all those magazines that I was buying every week and went through and just got a list of every single um, publisher in the UK. So Ocean and um, Renegade and, um, you know, uh, US Gold and put together a disc uh, of, the, of uh, Amazon Queen and sent them off. To each of the um, publishers, um, just hoping that we might get might hear something back, and uh, yeah, and Renegade was the was the cool kids at the time because they they were publishing a, a joint venture with Bitmap Brothers, uh, who did Speedball and as you guys know all those great games. Yeah, and yeah, it was it was uh, it was in um, a month or so later that we got a phone call like late at night and or yeah like, I think it was late at night. And it was um, a guy called Graham Boxall who was a producer for the Bitmaps and said he liked the game. And uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. So it was like suddenly somebody saw the value of what we'd made, and that's how we sort of led on the way to to get published by Renegade. Who needs EA anyway? That's right. <laughs> ironically, though, having uh, you know through my my career, I worked at Pandemic, and ironically, EA acquired the company. So I ended up I ended up quite not by choice becoming an EA employee. <laughs> uh, so it was very odd. Having said that, though, they're, they're very nice to work for, and and you know they do have a free game of the month club, which is nice. <laughs> Well, obviously, back in the day, having a really attractive box on the shelf could be like a big part of what would sell a game. I mean, how much involvement did you have in that? Because I know the, the cover art was different for the American version, wasn't it? That's right. And what was great with uh, Renegade was they were just such a, um, a really forward-thinking company and really creator-friendly. So when we signed with them, not only did we get like a 50-50 uh, revenue split, uh, we had full control and uh, final say on artwork and packaging. And they were really inclusive. So we actually flew over to the UK for a few months to finish off the game and, and do voice recording and then look at all the artwork and, and that sort of stuff. And we had a friend a friend of mine, uh, Pete uh, Mullins, who actually I work with at the moment. We're doing um, watch games and some new games together. Um, he's a, a comic book cover artist, and he did the art, uh, the box art. So it was pretty amazing. So we did all that, um, and we had a, a dream run. And it was amazing to see that as a, as a box on the shelves. It was, it was incredible. But with the US version, was Renegade at the stage was um, uh, negotiating, I think, a sale to be sold to another company. And um, Warner Interactive bought them. And so immediately, that, that even though our agreement said we had full say over everything, the Warner side didn't really care. So they presented to us this new artwork, which was, as we looked at it, was it was like a, a still shot of a guy playing golf um, and they'd obviously painted over it with Joe King. And they had, um, you know, in the background, they had things like Cobras, which you don't find in South America, which is where the game was set. So it was a terrible cover. And by that stage, it was kind of like, oh, here's the cover, and we're going with this. And we didn't have any time to say, hang on, that's that's not a very good cover. We need to change it. And it sort of came out um, with that cover. Um, yes, yeah, so that's that's why the covers are very different. Um, we had little control over that because of the, the company sale. But, um, but it's fun to look back at because it, it really is – I don't know if you've had a close look at it, but – it's it's yeah as I said I think Joe's still wearing golf shoes in the in the um, in the 
picture they painted. It's, it's yeah, I've got it on Google now. Um, yeah, he is. <laughs> oh. He actually is wearing golf shoes. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, and he's going. It's like a golf pose with the baseball bat. It's just, oh, it's it's pretty bad. Um, yeah, which I, I yeah, I'm biased, but. Well, we recently talked to Pixel Heart Games as well, and they mentioned that they've just got your permission to do a Dreamcast port. Um, do you think it's kind of crazy seeing people porting your game for old systems in 2020? It, it is It is incredible. I mean, because I had this situation a few years back where I was contacted by um, uh, an Israeli company who wanted to uh, bring it to the iOS and Android. And then um, Robert reached out as well with with regards to the Dreamcast, and it's I think it's incredible because I, I I love my Dreamcast. Um, it's in the garage. I have to dust it off to to play it. But the thought that there's um you know it's it's not surprising actually because I listen to your show every week and I know there's a huge market for retro games hmm. and uh, and this idea of doing demakes now and or or remakes on um you know on the systems. So um I'm just honoured that uh that it's going to be there. It's it's incredible. Um. One thing that we did do, or I did at least, uh, when when I got the rights to Amazon Queen back, because uh, from Chrome we, we sort of uh, had all this all our rights within Chrome. When I left Chrome, I took rights back to my old games. Uh, I had the freedom then because I owned it, I could do things, and so I made it freeware. And the Scum VM community took it and and really made it accessible so anyone could play it on any system. And I think that's really helped given it life. Um, if I hadn't have done that, I think it would have been probably a dim memory. Um, in the history of computer games, but as it is, it's 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 being able to be ported to many systems. So that's pretty pretty crazy that um, you know all these years later, people are still playing it. And it's great the games are more accessible now than they've ever been, isn't it? You know that that vast back catalogue, it's it's crazy. You know you can just play them on anything now. It, it is great, and I think this is the importance of um, owning your own um, games or owning your own intellectual property, so to speak, because you know you could have a situation where if it was like a I don't know a bigger company, they might bury it because they don't want anyone to do anything with it but it's not worth their while to do it themselves um and and situations with like with robert and um and liron uh who's doing the ios version this they're very small companies and they they can you know a lot of stuff's driven by passion and i think that's really exciting because then the the fans and people who have these old systems it's not like electronic arts is going to make a dreamcast game anymore but there are fans out there who love these games and 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 as, a, as almost like a hobbyist type thing or a small company can do it so I think having owning your own intellectual property lets you then talk to these people and actually say, yes, go ahead, make this. So it's very exciting. Well, a thing that we always kind of associate with Australia is surfing. And uh, we're wondering, like, were you surprised that there wasn't that many surfing titles out there, especially with popularity of games like Tony Hawk Skater? And I, I do remember some early surfing ones like California games and stuff like that. Um, what made you kind of get into surfing titles? Yeah, that was really interesting. We so Steve and I were we were based in Brisbane here, and we we're making we finished Amazon Queen, and we we're making lots of little prototypes, and we we're trying to get a new game off the ground um, called Stereo Jack, and we almost had it signed with Renegade, but that at the stage, you know, the company had changed and was Warner Interactive, and uh, we were approached by somebody who wanted to make a bodyboarding game. So the very first one we made was um, Mike Stewart's Pro Bodyboarding, which was on the PC, and it was a it was a game where you um, bodyboarded. It was in 3D. And uh, that was great for us to learn more 3D technology. And uh, yeah, th there weren't that many games. He was a passionate, um, he was actually Robert Walsh. So he became one of the, the co-founders of Chrome Studios. And so he was passionate. Um, he was a surf photographer and loved bodyboarding and, and surfing. And yeah, there was a big gap in the market at that stage. And then uh, with pro bodyboarding, uh, we used that to get a deal with, I believe, Mattel or one of the, one of the other companies um, in the day. 
and made um, a surfing game. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's uh, that's how that sort of came about. But yeah, once we did that, I think we started seeing things like Kelly Slater's surfing and a lot of other ones coming out. So um, the market sort of started growing then. So after that, what made you decide to start Chrome Studios? It was it was a bit challenging. We actually made uh, before we founded Chrome and did pro bodyboarding. We actually made a sequel to Halloween Harry. So we made Halloween Harry uh, along with Amazon Queen. We made a sequel called Zombie Wars, and this is back in '96. And we decided to do that digitally distributed and you play with credit card. We're just a little bit too ahead of the curve. And the, the PC market was challenging. And at that point, we we had our PlayStations and you know uh, we were like, this is amazing. We've got to be here. And so when we did pro bodyboarding and talking to Robert, we thought, look, let's put our eggs in the one basket and create console games. So that's where we wanted to move to. So that's how Chrome came about, this this uh, passion to, to make console games. And one thing we're missing, Steve and I, was the kind of business now. And that's where Robert went, came in. And we went and started you know, shopping around Mike Stewart's. And Robert got us deals. And you needed to have a publisher in order to make console games. So that's how we, that's how Chrome sort of began. It was really about us making console games and sort of growing, growing a company. Um, and that, was, uh, that really came out of that um, collaboration with, uh, with Robert uh, making pro bodyboarding and then showing that we had the chops to make 3D games, which is what you needed to make PlayStation games. One big 3D game that you did, obviously, was um, Tie the Tasmanian Tiger. Um, and I remember reading reviews of that um, when it came out, you know, people comparing it to like Mario 64 and uh, Crash Bandicoot as well. Where did the concept of doing this like really high-energy 3D platformer game come from, and what titles did influence it? Yeah, so, well, Steve and I were big fans of, obviously, uh, Mario. I uh, love Mario. And Spyro the Dragon was a big influence as well. Like, we loved Spyro the Dragon. And um, one thing that, because being Australian and, um, you know, we kept seeing all these uh, characters that were like, I think Crash Bandicoot technically, I think is Australian, or at least he's from, you know, he's Antipodian. And I remember uh, Coco, his girlfriend, is his girlfriend or his sister? Either way, she had an American accent and it sort of drove me nuts going, what? It's just completely wrong. And the color palette in the game when they went to the islands was all wrong. And we, th- and we, we loved, I said, Mario and Spyro. We thought, let's make our own version. Let's do an Aussie one. And so, again, a bit like when I was a kid and over Christmas time, I made uh, Halloween Harry and Chili Willy. When the company shut down in Chrome for the uh, Christmas break, uh, we decided to do some prototyping. And we created the first level of Ty with the character. And it was um, literally a bunch of us. Uh, we had a thing called Beer O'Clock, where um, at 5 p.m. We'd, we'd all stop and have beer on Fridays. And on the last Friday before holidays, we started um, brainstorming some ideas Um with a bunch of the guys at, at the company and you know we're throwing in let's have he could have boomerangs and should be from tasmania let's make him a tasmanian tiger and uh yeah so it was it came together really quickly and uh myself and a, another guy robert uh did some programming and put together the concept steve did all the art and we had a playable level where you run around and jump around like mangrove swamps and little character boomerangs they threw so that's sort of where the idea came about it was really um from the love of these great classic uh platform games and and then it sort of uh, grew from there. And I think also Jack and Daxter came out as well, and that was a big inspiration, uh, just the colourfulness of the world. I saw there's actually been a, a Kickstarter recently. Is there like an, an HD remaster then of, um, of Ty coming out soon? Yeah, so it's actually out now. So right. Ty came out on Steam, and um, that was the first iteration. And it, it, oddly enough, became one of the highest-rated Steam games. So because when we first released Ty, it was, you know, there was a little bit of people thinking it's a bit, a bit silly and uh, you know a bit 
bit over the top, very, very Aussie. But apparently there's a lot of uh, kids, I guess, now who are adults who are on Steam and love it. So, so it came out on Steam first, and then with the Kickstarter, that was to get it going on the uh, Switch, uh, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. And I believe all the targets are hit, so it should be coming out quite soon uh, on those platforms. And I'm excited. I, I, I have nothing to do with Chrome. I, I, um, I left Chrome uh, in the mid-2000s, but I'm very excited to play the game because it, it, you know, it is fun to play, uh, and, I, and I had a great time working on it. Well, you also based um, loads of voices and dialogue on real people. So did you have like a lot of your mates and stuff and kind of staff members in Thai, the game? Yeah, totally. The the entire um, characters, like, yeah, it's, they're all drawn from people we know. So, uh, yeah, we had our um, associate producer, Lindsay. Uh, he, he was, he, he sort of dressed, his dad was a, um, a research scientist who, who does uh, work with turtles up north. Uh, and he actually did, uh, I believe... Um, like marine biology and so he became one of our producers and he'd wear the the typical steve Irwin green khakis and so ranger ken in the game is based on him uh we had uh walshy was he had a nickname duke the americans called him duke so we made him a character in the game he was a, a surf life-saving uh platypus uh bruno one of our lead artists um his girlfriend was shazza so we put her in the game as ty's girlfriend so yeah we we, we put a lot of uh, our friends and family in there and um What's really interesting is uh, a lot of the dialogue, uh, we again, like Amazon Queen, we're inspired by a lot of British um, TV shows and American TV shows for jokes. We went back and mined a lot of the Australian culture. Um, we had characters like a, a TV presenter who used to present science shows. Um, his name was Julius Summoner Miller, and we made uh, Julius the Koala that character. Um, and we we're very lucky that we got to work with some um, great Australian voice talent. We recorded in the UK. Um, but the great thing is there's a lot of Aussies, as you probably know. If you go to a pub, chances are you'll be served by an Australian. So we got a lot of Australian voice talent over there as well. And, um, yeah, it was just great to have that. Uh, that, that it, really was, it really was um, not just myself but the entire team. It was, uh, it was the flavor of the team in the game. And even down to things like artwork, um, you know, the, the people were, were referencing material from um, places where they lived and making sure that the color palettes of the trees and – just the way things looked looked like they do in Australia. So, yeah, it, for us it was very personal. It was it was a great experience. So another big successful game you worked on was Destroy All Humans Two. It must have been really fun working with some big actors like Anthony Head. How was that? Yeah, well, that was that was really fun. I didn't actually uh, work with Anthony Head, unfortunately. That was our our director in the US. Um, oh, okay. But I did I did sit on some sessions. <laughs> yeah. But having having those guys, because again, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, a huge fan of that show and having Anthony in the game was, was pretty amazing. Um, even though I didn't sit in on the sessions, it was just good to have him in yeah. a game that I worked on. Um, that was pretty, pretty exciting. And it was good for me because I came in as, um, as the creative director on that. So I'd, I'd sold my shares in Chrome, took, took a break. Um, pandemic was set up here in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, I knew the guys who worked there and, uh, Brad Welch, he was the, um, one of the creators of Destroy Humans and he was the lead, uh, designer, creative director on the first one. And um, he'd finished the big slog of getting the first one out the door. And he was like, I just want to sit back and design levels. I don't want to have to manage this whole st- whole process. And um, I kept getting a call from Pandemic to come in and uh, have a chat and look at their game because they were finishing off Destroy All Humans. Um, and Brandon decided he wanted to, 
wanted to have a bit of a break next. And eventually, I, I was turned into sort of like job interviews. So eventually, uh, they said, would you like to work on the next one? And at this stage, I'd been going in and giving them notes and, and just playing the game. And it was a really fun game. I thought this would be really cool. So um, yeah, that's how I ended up becoming uh, involved in Destroy All Humans 2 and being creative director on that. Um, and it was great working with the, um, yeah, so not only having the great voice talent like Anthony Head, but we just had a really great team of people um, you know, who had played their first game and was a fan of their game. Uh, and I got to work with them and, and making the second one. So that was that was really cool. Well, when did you leave Chrome then? Was it 2005? What was kind of the story there? Yeah, so it was it was um, it was probably business, um, not not creative uh, conflict, more business conflict. Just the way um, uh, one of the directors was taking the company, I didn't agree with. So uh, yeah, at that point, I I decided I should 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 leave. And um, yeah, so it wasn't I I wasn't happy with how how it was going. Which is a bit sad because I think one of the great things with Chrome is is we always had this uh, idea of creating something original, but also doing licenses. So Chrome had a lot of uh, licensed things like yeah, you know, we did like Barbie's sparkling ice show, we did goofy extreme skating, um, skateboarding, but we were also doing original properties uh, like Ty, and had game like a game called Cat Burger in the works, and we'd set up a, a sort of a structure trying to get um, harness or foster the upcoming talent. Uh, other people in the company. So we had sessions where people would pitch their game ideas, and we had a few really cool ideas that we were um, that because up to that point it was sort of Steve and I were the creative directors, and we were the guys making this is our game, make it. Uh, we had um, some really cool stuff in development um, that people were prototyping that we were hoping to take out, and they were all original properties. Sadly, I think they kind of went the way where it was really just making licensed products, which isn't a problem, but it's a problem if you're tens of thousands of you know kilometers away from a head company. Mm. So when the global financial crisis hit, um, Chrome only had uh, licensed products. They didn't have any original stuff in development and they didn't own anything. So the first thing that happened was um, all the companies went, well, we're going to pull this back internally or, or not develop it. Um, and so that, that really impacted not just Chrome, but a lot of companies in Australia. Um, yeah, so, that, so I'd left before that um, GFC happened and before the collapse of Chrome. But it's, it's a shame because I think... Um, it could have uh, kept growing and, and could have been strong. The embers of Chrome are still there. There's, there's a s- small team, and that's the ones who are behind the Kickstarter and getting um, the updates out. Well, what are you working on these days, then? So I've been doing games my entire life, and I still do games now. But I thought, I'll just do a bit of a break and, and do some um, enterprise work, so non-game work, because I'd only done games at that point. And the job I somebody wanted me to do was exactly this work I'd done 10 years before at Pandemic. I thought, I don't want to do this again. Um, and I was also really keen just to make cool mobile games. And I had an Apple Watch, and I wanted to make Apple Watch games. And I thought it's easy to do that if I'm not if my day job isn't games. It's easy for me to own my own game technology. If I'm if I'm working for an enterprise which doesn't care about what I do, so that's what I've been doing for the last few years. But I've been making lots of games. So I've done um, a number of Apple Watch games. Uh, the most recent one is a game called Kepler Attack, and it's doing really well. Uh, on the App Store, and um, and again, I mentioned uh, a friend of mine, Pete, who did the artwork for Amazon Queen. Um, we're developing a um, another game right now, which um, we're gonna we're gonna do a, a live development. We're gonna put it out on the web, so you can play it on the web browser, and uh, and start developing it live. But yeah, so that's that's what that's what I'm doing. So I'm still making games. I'm still getting stuff out there, uh, but a lot more smaller and and, and personal projects. 
And the one I'm working on right now, as I was going through some of my notes for this podcast, I was going through uh, and I found a design document from 1994 for the very game that Pete and I are making now. Because so I said to him, I said, I've been wanting to make this game for years. And um, I didn't realize how many years it was, but oh, wow. <laughs> hopefully that'll be out uh, this year. What's that going to be then? Any any teasers? Yeah, it's 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 um it's a movie game. I, I, I want to make a game about the about making movies. Um, and there's a few of them being made over time, but uh, it's basically uh, uh, a very it's very simple because again, um, being being indie and just the two of us, we we can't make a big 3D game. So it's a very simple sort of 2D game with you doing the moment to moment decisions of as a producer, what do you do? Do you do you hire more staff? Do you do you do you make a sci-fi or do you make a western and it's it's that sort of style of game. It's not technically a retro game, but you know the idea came comes back from '94, which is almost retro now. Hey, well, John, it's been so interesting talking to you this week, and um, we'll put in our show notes. You know, people who want to track down the uh, the reboots of um, Ty and uh, Flight of the Amazon Queen, where they can get them from as well. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories with us this week. Thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure and an honor, and uh, yeah, love the show. Big 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 fan. Thank you. Enjoying the show. Why not check out some other great retro gaming podcasts like Retro Asylum, RGDS, Maximum Power Up, Arcade Attack, Arcade Perfect, and the 10 Pence Arcade.